Have any of you ever, in a moment of deep and overwhelming stress or anxiety or exhaustion or frustration, said or done something that came out a lot more cutting, a lot more aggressive, a lot more critical, a lot more negative than it would have under better circumstances? Probably all of us have been guilty of that at some point or another. And this morning I want to expand upon that idea and put it on steroids and take it to new heights. Over the past three years, with the experiencing of the deadly COVID-19 pandemic, to more and more mass shootings, to police and racial problems, to riotous political upheaval, to water depleting drought and climate change, to rampant inflation, and now with OPEC raising its prices, that's only going to get worse, to the invasion of Ukraine with all of its food and energy shortages worldwide that it is causing, as well as with the now constant threat of nuclear or World War III. Well, when you put all those things together, it's pretty easy to see how fear and panic and anxiety and uncertainty has gotten a deadly stranglehold on so many people in our world today. And as always, as always, whenever such fear and such panic and such anxiety, and especially life and death uncertainty about the future, gets into the heads and the hearts and the minds of human beings, it makes them increasingly harsh, angry, anxious, bitter, arrogant, aggressive, judgmental, and in many cases, completely irrationable. Irrationable? No. Completely irrational and totally unreasonable when dealing with other people. You see, like a lion with the proverbial thorn in our paw, we as human beings in times of, of heightened fear and stress and anxiety, especially when it comes to the uncertainty of the future, we will often lash out with no thought for the damage we're doing or the pain that we're causing, or even worse, with a full knowledge of and desire to inflict that same pain and suffering on others. As you look around our world today, you can see this all over the place. But here's the thing. As King Solomon said, it's nothing new. We can go back in our Bibles over 3,000 years and see the same thing. Turn with me, in fact, back to Exodus chapter 14, would you please? As we look back, it's amazing how we look back and we, we see the same thing over and over again. As we know in Exodus chapter 14, the people are backed up against the Red Sea. And I want 
you to look, beginning in verse 10. We know the story. Moses has led them out of, of Egyptian bondage, and they're backed up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's changed his mind. He's charging in with his army, and he's going to kill them all. Look what it says. Exodus 14.10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. They were fearful. They were terrified for their lives. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in this wilderness. You can, you can just see the panic. They have no idea what's going to happen. Well, they've got a pretty good idea what they think is going to happen. It's, and so they, they, they go right into this, this panic and fear and, and, and being so critical and, and, and being, telling Moses he totally did the wrong thing after you know, Moses is trying to free them and, and they're, they're hammering him. After Egypt's army was defeated and drowned in the depths of the Red Sea, we see in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam's marvelous song of deliverance. Oh, the rider and the horse have been cast. See, God's done this awesome thing. The, the Israelites, they've walked through, the, through the, the sea, the Red Sea there on dry ground, and they've made it, and they've seen Pharaoh and all of his, his finest just drowned in the depths of the sea, and they, they sing and they celebrate. You know what they're doing three days later? Three days later, you know what they're doing? They're complaining. It is absolutely... Amazing, okay? Three short days later, we find them complaining because of stress and anxiety over their water situation in verses 22 through 24. So Moses brought Israel, chapter 15, 22 through 24. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days to the wilderness, found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, and the people complained against Moses. What do we drink? So he cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, cast it into waters, and the waters were made sweet. Okay? You see, these people were, were, they didn't know what their future held. They didn't know what they were going to do for water. They, they had this problem, and, and there's all this distress and anxiety, and, and so they, they start complaining. Listen. Can I just be honest? They were not thinking rationally. Stop and these are people that had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. These are not people who had no idea what God could do. These are people that had just seen the 10 plagues. These are people who had seen God's hand and they're not thinking rationally. They're not thinking reasonably. Couldn't he who have parted it provide it? But you see, when fear and uncertainty grips, people don't think clearly. In fact, shortly thereafter, when they're stressed and fearful over food shortage, they complained against their God-given leadership again in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. You can read it for yourself. Here we go again. We get into the very next chapter in Exodus chapter 17. Look at the first four verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there's no water for the people. Hello, haven't we just seen God solve this problem? Did God just give them water? Uh-huh. They got no water to drink. So instead of saying, hey, can, God, can, 
you provide water for? I mean, he's already done it. We just saw that. What do they do? Well, verse 2, therefore the people contended with Moses, said, give us water that we may drink. You know, if these were three-year-olds, we'd say, that's no way to ask. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and they complained against Moses said, why is it you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you believe these people? But that's what fear and uncertainty does. Not only where is their common sense and rational reasoning there, because again, I hate to repeat myself, but God's just provided water for them a few chapters back. They know he can do it. Not only where is their common sense and rational reasoning, but where was their compassion and understanding for the man of God, Moses? Where was their compassion for Moses who had already led them through so much, brought them through so much, gotten them free, I'll tell you where their compassion was, non-existent, non-existent. There is only anger, criticism, grumbling, and complaining, and resentment. Why? Light bulb. Because that's what we as human beings tend to do when we are stressed, frustrated, uncertain, when all of this tension is on us, this is what we tend to do. The only compassion and understanding Moses got was from the pagan priest of a foreign land, which happened to be his father-in-law, Exodus 18. But it doesn't stop there. Because of the Israelites' fear and stress and worry about what their future held, you know what they did in Exodus 32? You know the story in Exodus chapter 32. They revolted and sought to return to the practices of their more familiar past, the golden calf. Okay? Then, they continued. In Numbers chapter 14, if you'll turn there please, Numbers chapter 14. I want to show you this. This is so representative of human nature. In Numbers chapter 14, in addition, they sought to persuade the people not to believe God's promises and to silence anybody who tried to get them to believe in God's promises. Numbers chapter 14, we would begin with verse one and just read the first four verses here to begin with. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. This is after the, the spies have returned and, and 10 of them had given a bad report. Numbers 14, two. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses. Moses hadn't done anything. Moses had told them to send spies in there and see how good it was. It wasn't Moses' fault. They complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said that, oh, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us out to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They already had a leader. They had the leader God wanted them to have, but they weren't happy with that. Wasn't the leader's fault. But they're just griping and complaining up a storm. And, and when we look in verses 9 and 10, we would see that the two men who tried to get them to think in terms of let's do what God said, they want to stone them. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb said, let's trust God. 
let's just not, let's, let's go do this. God told us we could have it. God showed us how good it is. Let's just try, kill them, get rid of them. We can't, we can't have that. We can't be walking on faith. You see, even as we go on into number 16 for just a moment for a couple of verses, we, we know there Korah, Datham, and Abiram's rebellion. And you can read through that if you're not familiar with it, but did you notice what these leaders that were starting this revolt and this rebellion against Moses, did you see what they charged Moses with? In Numbers chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, this is amazing to me. Numbers 16, verses 13 and 14, these, these men said, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Wait a minute. You want to talk about seeing the past through rose-colored glasses. You hear what they just said to Moses? You brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, man, it was so good in Egypt. We, we had it made in Egypt. Why did we ever let you talk us into coming out here? They go on in the next verse to say, you haven't brought us into a land of milk and honey. But they're saying, Egypt, you brought us out of a land of milk and honey. You brought us out of this wonderful... They were slaves. But you see, that is what panic and uncertainty and stress and fear do to people. It gives them a, it gives them a, a, a picture of the past that is not true either, and, and it's, it's, it's right here. That is amazing. But stress and fear and anxiety, especially over the future, will make us critical, irrational. Irrational? Why do I keep saying that? Irrational and unreasonable. That's what I want to say. It makes us unwilling to examine events in the light of the truth and instead only look at things through our own personal darkened perspectives. And, and, and I want you to understand, this isn't just an Old Testament thing, this is a New Testament thing. I want you to go back in your Bibles to a similar time and scene and set of circumstances in the first century. And as you do, before I tell you what it is, so you're all turning, not paying attention, before I do, I want you to note specifically in this text that we are turning to, the fear, anxiety, and uncertainty these people would face in their future, and then as a result, what it would make them do to one another, how it would force them to treat one another, because that's what we as human beings naturally tend to do. In fact, it's going to cause them to hate, kill, one, hate and kill one another and turn away from the truth and turn away from their love for God and one another. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I'm going to read fast. Stay with me. First eight verses. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. What I want you to understand from that text. There 
future is going to be messy. There's going to be trouble everywhere. Don't miss that. He says there's going to be war all over the place. You're going to hear rumors of war. You're going to have nations rising against nations. That's not a nice outlook for the future, okay? I mean, look what's going on in our world today, okay? You're going to have nation rise against nation. Not only that, but there's going to be famines. Um, we got some of those going on today, too. There's going to be pestilences, earthquakes. And Jesus said, that's just the beginning. You think that's bad? Let me tell you, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Their future was not pretty. Now, think of living in those times. Think of all of these things that they're talking about right there. We're not sitting here in these cushy little pews that we got all this stuff coming. Let me tell you what, would that cause you some anxiety if Jesus told you that had to do with you right now? If he did, that's, it doesn't have to do with us right now, but if it did, would that cause you a little anxiety, a little stress, a little frustration? It would me. Now, don't miss the first word of the next text then. As a result of all of these things happening, as, as a result of the wars and, and the nation against nation and the hunger and the, the, fam, the, the hunger and famine, same thing, pestilence and the earthquakes and all these things, then, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That's not going to happen until those other things happen. This is going to happen then. When, when, when things are really messy and all this bad stuff is going on and people are uncertain of the future, then they're going to deliver you up. Verse 10, and then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. All right. I want you to notice again, cannot stress again enough, verse 9. Why will they deliver them up at that point? Here's why. Because this is what people do. This is what human nature is. This is what human beings do under such trying and difficult times. They take out their fear. They take out their frustration. They take out their anxiety. They take out their uncertainty on others. They look for a scapegoat. And the Christians of the first century were the scapegoat. Don't miss that. And notice in verses 10 and 11, and then, then, this is a progression. He says in verses 12 and 13 that lawlessness will abound. The word lawlessness is described as the condition of being without law. Because they are ignorant of it or violating that law. Lawlessness means contempt, which is hatred, and violation of law, sin and wickedness. So, in other words, verse 12 could be translated thus, because of what the word lawlessness means. Because hating, violating, and not trusting in, or adhering to God's law will be everywhere, most people will stop loving like they had ought to. But it is those who won't let the fear and anxiety of those times cause them to stop loving who will be saved. That is 
very easily seen in verse 12 put a different way. Now, just so there's no misunderstanding, brief aside, it is critical to understand from this passage that Jesus is talking about specific things that are going to happen to that generation prior to that day and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Let me say it one more time so people don't think I'm taking Matthew 24 and trying to transpose it to today. I'm not. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why. We know, first off, that what I've just read from Matthew 24 is only talking specifically in specifics to those people in that day before the destruction of Jerusalem for three reasons. Here they are. Number one. Verse 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. He's talking about the end of the Jews as God's chosen people. He's not talking about the end of the world. How do we know that? We know that because in the book of Colossians, which we're studying on Wednesday night, chapter 1 and verse 23, Paul said, this gospel has gone into all the world. That happened in the first century. Okay? A second reason that we know that this does not have to do with some end of the world prophecy, as some try to make it, is because in verses 15 through 33 in this chapter, those are all things to do with Jerusalem. It doesn't matter to us if the Lord comes back on the Sabbath or not. It doesn't it matter to them because the gates would be closed and they wouldn't be able to flee when the Roman army showed up. This is all talking about them. And, and when the Lord comes back, ladies, it ain't going to matter if you're pregnant or not. The Lord's still coming. But to them it mattered because they couldn't run. They couldn't flee because they were pregnant. So this is, this is all pertaining to them specifically. And finally, we know that from verse 34 of Matthew 24, which says very, very clearly, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things have taken place. So we know up to verse 34 that Jesus is answering the first question, when he will come back in judgment on Jerusalem when all those stones are torn down one on another. Y'all with me? Okay. However, that does not negate the point of this lesson. In fact, it reinforces it. And the point of this lesson is simply this. How in any time, any time, of deep-seated life and death, fear, stress, frustration, anxiety, and uncertainty over the future, whenever that time occurs, be, we as human beings will often take out our fear and frustration on others by becoming far more critical, far more unloving, and far more judgmental and unreasonable than we otherwise would be. That's just human nature. It's the same thing we see happening in our world today. Don't we see that in our world today? I mean, look at some of the posts on social media. Everybody's just hating on everybody because there's so much uncertainty and, and we don't know about, about Ukraine and we don't know about World War III and we don't know about politics and, we don't, and the world's getting worse and there's this and there's that. Everybody's just like, ah! And so they're striking out, they're just lashing out like a wounded tiger and just ripping people up. It's everywhere. That's, that's what we do, unfortunately, as humans. We see that in our world today. Aggression, 
falsehood, deception, people being all too easily offended, people becoming unloving and uncompassionate when it comes to others. That is Matthew 24, 9 through 12. There's a lot of people that are needlessly offended in our world today. Are there, yes or no? Okay, just like in that day. He wasn't writing this about us, but by extension it applies. If what I've said so far does not describe how the vast majority of humanity in our troubled world today is treating each other. If what I've said so far doesn't only describe what they're doing to each other, but why as well, then I don't know what does. Same thing as Jesus said was going to happen in those days. However, Throughout the scriptures, here's the punchline. Throughout the scriptures, we are told repeatedly that that type of attitude, that type of response must never, ever, ever, ever permeate the Lord's church. That Fear and anxiety and stress and being overwhelmed by worldly events, uncertainty about the future, while that may be out there in the world and while that may be causing people to just rip each other up because everybody is, is short on patience and short on understanding and critical of everybody else and everybody's smarter than everybody else, that has no place in the church. Because we don't operate on fear. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's got no place. None. It's human nature, but it's got no place in the church. Because while such actions and attitudes may be just human nature, you know what human nature is? That's another term for the sinful nature. That's what it is. And the sinful nature has no place in the Lord's church. That is certainly not the spiritual nature of any of those who have any hope of going to heaven. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 26. We cannot let the sinful nature rule. We must put the sinful nature or human nature, whichever way you want to phrase it, we're talking about the same thing. We must put that to death. You know what Paul told Titus? The Apostle Paul, listen to this. He told Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, that although we used to live like those in the world, hateful, he says, and hating one another, verse 3 of Titus 3, there's now no longer any place for that. We as Christians, even though we used to be hateful and hating one another when we lived in the world, must now, verse 2, speak evil of no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. We're told time and again throughout the New Testament, time and again throughout the New Testament, that although such critical, hurtful, hateful, fearful attitudes may permeate the world, they must never be allowed to infiltrate the Lord's church. The fruit of that fearful, anxious, stressful, overwhelming stuff that's going on must never be allowed to 
come into our hearts and cause the fruit that comes out of our hearts to be a critical, negative, grumbling, complaining mess on each other. And I'm going to give you several passages, and I hope you look them up, or at least write them down. One more time, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 talked about those events that would happen between 33 AD when he preached that and 70 AD when we know the temple was destroyed by Titus in Jerusalem, that 37 year span, okay? You with me? He's writing about up until 70 AD. Well, right there in that span, as things were getting worse, the things he said is, as there were wars and, and pestilence and, and all of those things were getting worse, coming to that 70 AD climax, right there around 60 AD, right in the middle of all that, that stuff that's going on that caused so much fear and stress and anxiety, you know what Peter wrote? Peter wrote right in the middle of that, or, or right up towards the end of it, when things were really getting tense. You know what he wrote? Listen first, and then I'll give you the references. The three of them together, just listen. This is what he wrote. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently, with a pure heart. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender hearted. Be courteous. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Did you hear what he said? He said love will cover a multitude of sins. What does that mean? That means love for one another doesn't hang each other's sins out there for the whole world to see. That's what it means. It means, it doesn't mean that you're okay with sin. It doesn't mean that you cover up sin, but it means you cover for your brother. Because with so much hatred and, and, and people, just like we read in Matthew 24, there's so much hatred going on because of all the, the stress and the, and, and the uncertainty. And, and, and he says, Peter says, love one another. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Don't grumble, 1 Peter 4 and verse 9. You see... Instead of fighting, biting, and complaining like the world, Christ's church must always be loving, forgiving, and encouraging like the Lord. No matter how much fear or stress there is and uncertainty over the future. Peter wasn't the only one. James also writing in the 50s there before the 70 AD destruction of the temple, writing somewhere there in the 50s in the first century, right in the middle of those calamities and uncertainties that Jesus had addressed, James too said, don't speak evil of or grumble against one another lest you be condemned. James chapter four, verse 11, verse 12, chapter five and verse nine, they weren't alone. I never really thought too much about this until I started looking at all the times all the different writers in the Gospels said, don't, don't, don't grumble, don't, don't complain, don't, don't do those things. And, and all of it's right up there is, is, is those things Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 are just revving up. 
They said, don't let all that come into the church. Paul, writing to the faithful saints and brethren in Christ during that same catastrophic events timeline of Matthew 24, wrote several things we need to be aware of in that great matters of opinion chapter in Romans 14, Paul wrote, let us not judge one another anymore, verse 13. But instead, as he wrote in Romans chapter 15, verses five through seven, he said, we are to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, receiving one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. If you think you're different than I am, raise your hand. Really? Y'all different than I am. There's only one Doug Dingley and that's a good thing. <laughs> Did the Lord accept Doug Dingley? Did the Lord accept you who are different from Doug Dingley or did he accept Doug Dingley that's different from y'all? Yes. The Lord accepted us all no matter our race, our gender, no matter the sins we had committed. He received us into the body when we were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Is that right? And in Romans chapter 15 verses 5 and 7 he said, you, you receive one another the same way the Lord received you. That's how God gets glory. We will glorify, we want to glorify God, we sing it. We glorify God when we accept one another where we're at. Without grumbling and complaining and criticizing Christ and say, yeah, I suppose I can take Doug, you know, he's pretty messed up and he's done this and he's done that. I suppose, it's not the way he did it. And maybe you've been away from the Lord and, and, and you want to come back and, and he won't grumble and complain then. Listen, did, what did the father in the story of the prodigal son do? Say, oh, here comes that renegade son. I wish he'd stayed up. No! He ran to meet him and he said, let's celebrate. And he gave him the best of everything. God says we're to receive each other like that. And we can't receive each other like that if we're so letting all the stress and the human nature cause us to snap and criticize and be unreasonable with one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, Paul wrote how we must not complain as some of the Israelites did. Because when they complained, they were destroyed by the destroyer. In Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you to turn to this one. Please do. Paul's writing to the churches of Christ in the Galatian region. And they've got some problems going on with false doctrine and stuff and all of that. But he reminded the first century congregations of the Lord's church in the Galatian region during that same time when everything was going to pieces that Jesus had talked about in Matthew 24, look what he wrote in Galatians 5, 13 through 16. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But don't you understand there's earthquakes and famines and war all over the place? Paul, Paul, don't you understand what Paul said? All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, but you don't know what we've been through. Paul could say, yeah, you have no idea what I've been through. But they couldn't allow that to cause them to become as critical and biting of one another as the world that he says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You can't be like, you can't be like nation against nation. You can't be like all those people that are, that are just, just, just critical and fighting and, and you can't be like that. 
he immediately goes on to tell them right there in Galatians 5, verses 20 and 21, after we read 13 through 16, he tells them in verses 20 and 21 that those who have and hold and practice such things as hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and things like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's writing to Christians. He said, you can't, you, you can't bite and devour, you can't, you can't have those things. The world's full of them. Not with you. Look what he wrote to Church Christ in first century Philippi. Look in Philippians 2. Turn over there with me. And again, Paul writing to Philippians sometime around 60 AD, and I know that I keep bringing up that date, but you can go five years one way or the other, and I don't have the exact year that every one was written. And if I told you the exact year that I thought, there'd be some commentator that would disagree by six months. So anyway, middle, just a little past the middle of the first century when all those things were happening, look what he wrote to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things. How many? All without complaining and disputing. Some versions say grumbling and complaining. Why would I do that, Paul? Don't you know, don't you understand the stress I'm under and, and, and things are just such a mess? Paul, why would I do all things without grumbling and disputing? Verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul said, because that's what everybody that walks in darkness is doing. That's what the world's all about. That's what people do. That's human nature. We, we, we get scared and we get loaded down and we get uncertain about the future and it weighs on us and, and we might not admit it. We go about our daily lives, but it just keeps wearing and tearing and pushing and, and breaking and, and clamping down. And, and, and eventually, just like when you're tired sometimes and you snap at somebody, you break. And you say things you wouldn't have said without all that weight and pressure and stress and fear and anxiety on you. And Paul says, the reason that you don't be like them, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God. He's talking to Christians who are already children of God, but he said, yeah, but you've got to look like God. You've got to have the faith and patience. Listen, did Jesus put up with a little bit of pain in his future after he said those things in Matthew 24? Jesus put up with a little bit of struggle? Did he... Was he harsh, critical, negative, complaining about everybody else, just striking back and lashing out in fear on the cross? No, that's what one of the thieves did. Jesus didn't. We can't let that happen to us, brethren. Probably one of the strongest admonitions against grumblers and complainers in the entire New Testament is found in Jude 16 through 19. And you can go home and read it, Jude, the last book there before Revelation, verses 16 through 19. But I don't have time this morning. I, I want to move on to the big question before we close. The big question is, okay, all right. The uncertainty, the stress, causes us to behave in unreasonable and irrational ways because we're human beings and that's the way we're made. We've seen that. Okay, so what do we do about it? We know we're not supposed to in the church, so how do we stop it? What is the key to not being like that? Because we're made that way. How do we stop doing it? 
How do we avoid, avoid all the grumbling and complaining and criticism that just comes so stinking naturally as a result of our human nature when times are really, really stressful and uncertain? How do we do it? Number one, already alluded to this, we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But the second one is the big one. The second one is the answer. The second one is a one-verse answer. Brethren, I'm telling you right now, this one verse cures it. I mean, it absolutely locked down, cures it. And we all know the verse. We all know it. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first recorded sermon. Turn back there. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gave, here's the answer, here's how, even though it's human nature, even though our future is all unknown, even though we got the stress, this anxiety, and we sometimes get critical and negative and, and do these things we wouldn't do if things were just flowing so smooth, how do we keep it out of ourselves? How do we stop doing it? Matthew 7, you know the text. Verse 12, that's it. That's simple. What do we call Matthew 7, verse 12? We call it the golden rule. It's really, that, that's the be all, end all, do all, that's it. Listen, listen to it again. Matthew 7 and verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What does that mean? That means that You do to somebody else in a certain position or situation exactly what you would want them to do to you if you were in that position. That's it. You, you treat somebody else the same way that you want to be treated. You do to them what you would want done to you. It's that simple. Brethren, how many marriages in our country that are a mess could be fixed by Matthew 7, 12 if both the husband and the wife would simply do to the other one what they want done to them? How many could be fixed? How many? Pretty much all of them. Yep. Mm -hmm. How many churches could be fixed if every member was to do to others exactly treated them the way they'd want to be treated? Think I'd solve any church problems? One or two billion, maybe? And... and this, this is so important, this is, this is the answer. This is the gold mine right here, this is it. Game over, this, this is the answer. And, and did you ever tie this in and notice this? Did you notice there's more to Matthew 7, 12 than we often give it credit for? We often talk about the first verse, therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, and we stop right there. But Jesus didn't stop there. Notice the next line, he said, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, hold that thought. We're familiar in Matthew chapter 22, 35 through 40, how the, the lawyer comes up to Jesus, says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then what did Jesus say? For on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Let me say it one more time. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Did you notice what he said in Matthew 7, 12? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why? For this is the law and the prophets. It's the same phrase. Why? Here's why. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're going to do to your neighbor as you'd want done to you. Don't know if I can get all my fingers together. They all go together. 
love God, you've got to love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you can do to him what you'd want him to do to you. Did you also notice in Matthew 7 and verse 12 that this is the difference between going to hell with the world and going to heaven with the Lord? Verses 13 and 14, don't dis divorce this from verse 12. He says, enter by the narrow gate. That's not a whole new subject. He's just talked about the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. That comes right after... Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Because the majority of people ain't going to do that. God's church is to do that. We're not to go with our human nature. What, what this means is giving others the same measure of grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness and understanding as you want others, including God, to give to you. Luke 6, 31 through 38. Listen closely. It means loving accepting, forgiving, and working together with others despite their flaws and failures. The world's not going to do that. It means doing that the same way that you want others, including God, to love and accept and forgive and work with you despite your faults and failures. How many of you in this room need God's grace for something you did last month? You know what that also means? It means that we need each other's grace for something we did last month, too. It means doing unto others what we want done to us. We want God's grace when we fail. We need to give others God's grace like we want him to give us. Matthew 18, 21 through 35 says, if I can summarize all those verses, this is not an option. You ever been somewhere and there's been an alarm go off? This is not a drill. This is not a drill. And it really is trying to impress upon you. This is, this is not an option. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, particularly verse 35. For so my heavenly Father will do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Because as James writes in James 2, 13, this is my closing text, so please just key in and listen tight. James 2 and verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is James chapter 2 in verse 13. And that's the title of today's sermon, by the way, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Brethren, when we are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible tells us that we are to repent. And that what that means is put that old man of sin to death. It means not living like I used to live, but living like God wants me to live to the best of my ability. That's, that's what repentance is. It's turning to God. And so I know we live in tough times. I, I know there's a lot of stress and tension about the future. I, I know, I know. I read more news than I should. I try not to, but I read more than I should. I know it's hard. 
I, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I, I don't know about inflation. I don't know about World War III. I don't know about all that other stuff. And, and sometimes when we get tired and worn down and overloaded, you know, even my wife have been married to over 40 years. You know, there's just times I can get tired and frustrated. I'll snap at her. I don't want to ever do that. But we can do it with each other, too. And we can be critical and, and criticize things we wouldn't if, if we didn't have that stress. So I am begging you to stop and think this morning. Strive not to let your human nature ever, ever, ever take over in your life anywhere, but especially in the church. How many times were we written, don't grumble, don't criticize, don't complain? I know times are tough, but this is supposed to be a refuge, isn't it? Isn't this where we come for peace? Isn't this where we come for grace and mercy from God and one another? Shouldn't this be a safe haven from all of that junk? But it's so hard as humans. Again, just, just, just be aware of it. The sermon just says, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Cut them the same slack you'd want if you were in their shoes. Give them the same grace and mercy that you'd want if you were them. That's all. And it works, and it keeps that human nature out of the church. This morning, I have two questions for you to consider. In light of eternity, as we conclude, have you received God's grace and mercy by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just as the scripture says that we must do, in order that you might have triumph on that day of judgment? Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy will give you the grace and forgiveness through the blood of his son if you'll accept it in the waters of Christian baptism. Question number two. How are you doing at passing along God's grace and mercy to others and crucifying that human nature, sinful nature? Maybe you need prayers for that this morning. Maybe there's somebody that you need to talk to. Maybe there's somebody you need to ask forgiveness for. Maybe you just need to be stronger in that area. We'll pray for you. I'm already down front, pray for me. Either way, do not let the world and its ways influence or corrupt you into being or doing anything else or less as we stand and sing.